Okay, go to uh, Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, this came out of a a question Eli and Andy were asking the other day. Um, They were working on trying to understand the Scripture, and so they asked a question. So before we begin, uh, I, I emphasize to you that Asking a question to me is always good, even if you're wrong in what you're asking. It winds up being good because you learn. And so um, they asked the question. So this, <clears throat> we we looked at this the other morning, but I'm, I turned this into a lesson because it's it's uh, very helpful. Isaiah 41. I'm going to get some scriptures here, if I could. Uh, Neil is going to read the main verse. Isaiah 41, five through seven. Uh, Robert. Romans eleven twenty nine, Ethan Matthew eighteen twenty. Um, uh, let me see here. Skipping on down. Five through seven. Yeah, that's enough for now. <coughs> Howard Hendricks has a a book on uh, understanding the Bible, and in it he uses a uh, an example about uh, the issue that we're going to talk about. He said that he heard uh, he heard an interview with Roger Staubach. This is before your time, the old quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. And he said when he heard the interview, it made Roger Staubach sound like a jerk, some of the things that were being said. But then he said he got to read the article, and he found out what the reporter was doing for whatever agenda he had, the reporter was taking comments that he had made out of context and then just putting it in to certain answers so it made it look bad. But the problem was it wasn't in the original setting, which is what context uh, is uh, all about. So that that is a very, very important part of... It's actually the, one of the most foundational issues of understanding the Bible and finding revelation. You cannot understand the Bible and you cannot find revelation accurately unless you first discover what is the context of what is being said. And we'll talk about what context uh, context is. So this, this lesson is on finding the context of Scripture. We're going to read Isaiah 41, 5 through 7. This was the original Scripture that Andy uh, asked me about. Go ahead. The coastline sought and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smoothed with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldiering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Okay, so Andy and Eli were working on this and asked me a a, a question. And the specific, if I remember uh, correctly, Andy was asking in verse 7, who is the he in verse 7? And he was asking, is that God? They were digging around. They were asking questions of the Scripture, which is good. That is a, that's how you find uh, revelation. But they uh, needed to actually go to the starting point. What we did is we had to find what is the context. Okay, let's talk about the first thought is... Context is king. That's an, that's an old saying in Bible interpretation. Context is, is king. The Bible is written in sections. It's written in uh, sections of ideas or thoughts, and often these are connected thoughts. It's not just random statements, but it's statements that go together. So, when you disconnect a statement, a word, a phrase, a verse, from its context, it leads to misunderstanding. I'm going to give you two famous examples of these are commonly, I've even heard guys preach uh, uh, in in our fellowship, from these two verses, uh, the first one especially, and this is out of context, Romans 11.29. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. 
Okay, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. I have heard this applied often for, uh, in in terms of of uh, failure. You know, the pastor, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, arrested for uh, flashing and he wears women dresses, but uh, that's okay, he's still going to be able to minister because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Well, the the problem is that verse has absolutely nothing to do with pastoring. It has nothing to do with ministry and the church has nothing to do with ministry of any kind. Romans 11 is actually speaking about Israel. And the whole argument is is God finished with the nation of Israel because now the Gentiles are uh, uh, what God is uh, focusing on. That is the whole argument. That's the setting or the surrounding. And he says they have gifts, which is the word of God. Right? They have the uh, calling as God's uh, nation. They have a calling to represent God's purposes. And so his argument is the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Israel, the nation of Israel. You cannot take that verse and apply it to everything in life because the context is only for the nation of Israel. That's a very good example of violating context. Okay, Matthew 18.20 is a famous one. Hopefully not too many people in our fellowship, but this is often uh, uh, used by uh, religious people why I don't go to church. Matthew 18.20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Okay, so uh, if two or three of you go to the Cardinals game, then according to that scripture, then God's there with you. Right? But in actual fact, again, that scripture is not talking about just getting together and God showing up. It's talking about church discipline. It's saying when when in the church you have to exercise discipline, he says when you do that with my authority, then God says I show up and I honor that. And we've talked about that. We were talking yesterday morning about fornication, not allowing that. That would be an application here. God blesses people who do right in church discipline. So you can't just apply it willy-nilly just any, anywhere in life. Two of us uh, were walking in the park. God was there. No. This is church discipline. So, that is, those are two examples. Again, you could take something out of its original context and make it say something that it's not meant to say. So, if you were looking at those verses and you wanted to know, man, wow, the gifts and the calling of God. So is that... Is you could begin to ask questions, which is the basis of how you find revelation. But if you don't find context, you're going to come to a wrong conclusion. Okay, uh, I think it was Friday. So Eli and Andy working. Andy uh, asked me about a scripture and says, Pastor, in verse seven, who is the he that is smoothing with the hammer? Is that God? Okay, all right. Asking question. Very, very good. So, he was asking, then why is God, if it's God, then why is God hammering? What's he soldering? Right? And then what are we to do with it? So, that's that's the process of asking questions. Very good. But, the problem is, you the, the number one rule of understanding uh, the Bible or interpretation has to do with context. Con means with. Context is with the text. So this is the, uh, the... The idea is that any word, phrase, or verse in the Bible, it is set within or inside some connected thoughts. So when we talk about context, we're talking about the setting of the Scripture, the place of the, of the passage in the Scripture, or... What, what is context? What comes before? What comes after? That would be one way you can look at it. Or technical definition of uh, context is the parts of a discourse that surround a word or passage and can throw light on its meaning. That means surround, before, after. has a setting. That's what context is all about. So, the main question of context is what was the author talking about and what is the overall point that is being made? And so, as I said, this is why 
Asking questions is always good. We learned, Eli and Andy, they were incorrect because they didn't start with context, but we learned. So what we did is we had to examine what is the context in Isaiah 41, what is he talking about? That's how we're going to find out who is he in verse 7. That was the original question. So we have to find what is the main idea uh, of that. So the, the phrase... And the, the title of this point is Context is King because that determines everything. If you don't understand context, then you're going to come to a completely different understanding. Context is what drives the meaning uh, of a phrase. And so when you understand the context, often the meaning becomes plain. And that's what we're going to discover happen here. Okay, so the key... Out of that, then, Ethan asked a question about context, and so then, you know, what is context, which I just explained, but how do you find context then? So if you're looking at Scripture, how do we determine what is the context or the setting <coughs> of this <coughs> Scripture? Number one is you have to carefully read the text. So you have, that's, you're, you're not going to learn unless you carefully uh, read, and then you're asking questions, the five W's of journalism is who, what, why, when, where, right? So, we are looking for, as we carefully read, we're asking questions, we're looking for clues or key words that explain. If we started, and often you've got to say, where does this whole idea begin? So, if we start reading in verse uh, 1 of chapter 41, it goes on, verse 2... <coughs> Uh, uh, I'm reading from the New King James. We get the key here. Who raised up one from the east? From the east. So now it's it's talking about somebody. So now we're getting a clue. It's giving the you know people were afraid of what he did, dust to the sword. You know he pursued them. Blah blah blah. And how how God feels about him. But obviously, as I carefully read this, I discover that verse 2 tells me we're talking about an individual. We don't know who the individual is yet, but that is a key. Now I'm, So this passage is talking about somebody. Verse 5 is actually then, where Andy and Eli started looking, is actually the reaction to this man, whoever he is. The coastlands saw it and feared, which is we're going to discover is actually the nations on the coast. The ends of the earth, they were afraid of what? Of this guy, whoever uh, he, might, uh, he might be. So apparently he was a conqueror. If I read through, I see there he's conquering the nations. He, uh, sword, bow, those are conquering words. And verse 4 tells us that in some way God called him. Or this was a plan of God. His conquering was a plan of God. So, I'm now getting the setting of verse 5 through 7 has something to do with this guy who is a conqueror. <clears throat> then, the second thing in determining context is you're looking for logical sections of division. The logical sections of division in chapter 41, 1 through 4, speaks of this conquering man. Verse 5 through 7 is talking about the reaction to the conquering man. And verse 8 through 20 talks about God's care for Israel. And verse 29 speaks about the foolishness of idolatry. So always when you're looking at a section, it, it helps if you say, all right, okay, now new idea, new idea. We don't know whether they're all related yet, but we're just making sure that we understand the divisions of the Scripture. And then the key that we're going to find out is, are these connected ideas? The conquering man, the reaction, the care for the nation, the idolatry, are those connected or are those four different ideas? So that's what we're going to, we're going to find out. Okay, let's talk secondly about tools for determining context. So, now you have, if it's, if your reading itself does not make it plain, 
And sometimes that happens. You can simply read and go, yep, okay, I get it. I know what he's talking about now. So then your option, secondly, is to use tools. Okay, number of tools. Commentaries, of course, are uh, options that you have. Commentaries are written by scholars, guys who devoted themselves to the Bible, uh, to you know Greek and Hebrew and different languages. And they can often give light on language, customs, and, and meanings. However, I, in Bible study, in understanding the Bible, I often tell guys, I feel you should go to the commentaries last. Okay, we've talked about this in other... Uh, I, don't, I don't think that you should say, hey, what's that scripture about? Go to a commentary. There's a number of simple reasons. Number one, they have doctrinal bias. Most commentators are Calvinists. Most commentators are anti-supernatural and they will go through incredible twistings and turnings to explain why there are no miracles and they'll, they'll inject that. So I don't think that's helpful in understanding the Bible if you go to a Calvinist, anti-supernaturalist, especially if you're looking at a scripture on, on uh, the miraculous, you know, and uh, something. The second reason why is... You know, guys, they're they're brilliant. They've they've devoted themselves for years, so their minds run in certain paths. As soon as you start reading them, your mind is going to go down their path. <coughs> many of them. Part of the problem is that many of them have been scholars without ever uh, preaching, and so that that may or may not be the best uh, option. And the third reason why, and we're going to see here is they focus on, here's your word for the day, they focus on minutiae. Do you know what that means? Tiny little details. Tiny little details from the key word, the root word, minute. They focus on tiny little details that nobody cares about. Okay, so this is, if you were to, for instance, say, I don't get what verse 5 through 7 is, and go to Adam Clark, this is a quote, you'll see it when you're in there, <clears throat> Adam Clark says there that it should not be moved. Talking about, remember they, uh, what does it say? They fastened it with pegs or they nailed it with nails, depending on your translation. That it should not be moved. So Adam Clark, this is what the helpful thing that he says about understanding verse 5 through 7. That it should not be moved. The original phrase was that it shall not move. Five of the MSS, which is the ancient text, and the ancient versions add the conjunction and even gives the helpful little writing in Hebrew, vow, and leading, and then he gives more Hebrew, velo, and not, which seems to be right. It's like, great. <laughs> I don't read Hebrew, but he just wrote Hebrew for me. That's very helpful. <laughs> right? So, to him, that's really interesting. Right? So, this uh, this thing they're making is not supposed to move. So, it should not move or shall not move. It's like he's... It's really interesting to him in the original Hebrew, the getting there. But the point is it's not supposed to move. But I don't even know what the heck it is. <laughs> so, that's why that gives you an example. That's why I say don't go to the commentators first. Hmm. They have good things to say, but don't... don't uh, and then you discover that there's a few other commentators they totally ignore. They have nothing about verse 5 through 7. So if Andy was going to go to a commentator, commentaries and try to find out what 5 through 7 meant, he might struggle depending on which commentaries he has. There were a few that had good things to say. The second tool you can use is a study Bible. Study Bibles are very, very helpful. They often are a little different than... Uh, than a commentator. A commentator like this, like I just read Adam Clark, they're interested in the microscopic view. In other words, he's looking in there. What's the little thing in the Hebrew and how that determines? That's, he's focused on that. A study Bible gives the macro view, which is the larger picture. Any, how many of you here have a study Bible of any kind? Okay, all of you should have study Bibles if you're going to be a, a disciple. If you were to look at the beginning of every book in the book of Isaiah, they often give the macro view. It's brilliant because they can tell you, if I remember right, Isaiah is uh, divided uh, almost exactly in half, is it? Or in thirds? It seems like it's in half. But anyway, they give you that. 
I would never have known that simply by reading, but these guys, brilliant uh, scholars, they look at the large and they say, look at this, out of uh, whatever it is, 40, uh, 46 or 48 chapters, or however many it is, half have to do with uh, the judgment and half have to do with the Messiah or something like that. They give a, a larger view. So that often is more helpful in determining what's going on because they're not so much focused on little little things. So it is good if you have access to more than one uh, study Bible. So some of you have a uh, you know an actual physical study Bible. Uh, Bible software is very helpful, and you can get it on your phone. Uh, eSword. Uh, I had a pastor sent, show me the other day. He sent me and asked me uh, sent me a link of something he can get on eSword for free. You can get tons of resources. eSword. Some of you that have Macs. We were discussing this yesterday. I think they have eSword for Mac. Uh, for iPhone, for Android, for paper, rock, and scissors. I don't know. They've got it all. So uh, that's that's free. Or if you want to make an investment, you know, then you get into I use Word Search or any of them. But my point is, the the, the reason why I'm mentioning that is is having multiple. I have access to multiple study Bibles. Um, in that I have some in built into programs on my iPad. I have three study Bibles that I've bought and used them as standalone as well. And so the one that I love is life application, but in this case, life application let me down. It didn't it doesn't say anything about five through seven. So if that was my only option, I'm a little stuck in this instance. Got tons of great things. Doesn't help me in five through seven. If I look at, at uh, study Bibles in one through four the study Bible tells me who this conqueror is in 1 through 4, and it tells me he is King Cyrus II of Persia, or normally just called Cyrus. So, I now know who this man is, so it was a physical, it was a real person. So I know that it's not talking about God, it's talking about a man. So, now I understand something that I didn't know before, and I got that from a study Bible. Other study Bibles then, they now explain Andy's original question, verse 5 through 7. So what's going on? Who's the he? What's going on in verse 5 through 7? And they explain that this is the reaction of the nations to Cyrus. Cyrus started conquering. He just started taking one nation after another. It would be like... Somebody's starting down in you know Bolivia, and they just start moving through Central America. They're getting closer and closer. So the other nations are going, look at this. We're in trouble, man. This guy's going to take us over. Ryrie's study Bible. His comment on 5 through 7. Isaiah mocks the heathens nation, heathen nations' futile attempts to stop Cyrus' campaigns. Schofield says, the reference here seems to be to Cyrus whose victories in rapid growth and power ascribed to the providence of God. Verses 5 through 7 describe the effect of the nations upon the nations of the rise of Persian power. They heartened each other and they made new idols. Verse 7. At verse 8, the prophet addresses Israel. Since it was their God who raised up Cyrus, they should expect good and not evil from him, which is what verse 8 through 20 is about. Verses 20 21 through 24 form a contemptuous challenge to the idols in whom the nations are are trusting. That is brilliant. So he just gave you an overall of the whole chapter and how it all is actually connected. You have a conqueror, verse 1 through 4, who God raised up. Verse 5 through 7, the nations, their answer is let's raise up more idols to try to defeat Cyrus or to protect ourselves. That's their reaction. Verse 8 through 20 is, God is the one who's in charge of world events. That's why the news shouldn't freak you out. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Are we going to catch Ebola? God's in charge of world events. And then verse 21, that's why it's stupid to trust in idols. Because God is in charge. So it's actually all connected. And I got that from a study Bible. Very, very good. The New Living uh, Translation Study Bible. This taunt against idolatry was a response to God's raising up of Cyrus. The nations hoped to find protection 
in their idols. So they're explaining. What's going on in verse 5 through 7? They're hoping idols will protect them against Cyrus. And the ESV study Bible, the nations respond to the upheavals of history by nervously constructing more gods to believe in. But how can created creators save? Very good. Okay, I got all that from study Bibles. <coughs> okay, now, having used those tools in determining context, then you ask some questions. One of the, the issues of, of uh, context is what is the historical setting? In other words, what was going on in history when that was being said? Because that will often tell you why. If you know when it was being said, you often will know why it was being said. So, when was it written? It was written when they were in exile. The nation had been destroyed. To whom was it written? To the nation of Israel. Why was it written? Because the nation was discouraged, thinking that God must hate them and had given up on them because their nation had been destroyed. So, if you understand that is what's going on at the time. So, these people are discouraged. We failed as a nation. God must hate us. He's finished. He's never going to help us again. So God's answer in that setting is, listen, do you see world events? I raise that guy up. The nations are going to trust in idols, which is what you did. That was stupid. He goes on to tell them, verse 8 through 20, how much he loves them and still has a plan for, their, for the nation. He doesn't give up on them. And then verse 21 through 24 so that's why, how stupid to trust in idols. Didn't help you in the first place. So why trust in that now? Okay, so that tells you now context. So now you, you see, out of their original question, Eli and Andy asked a very good question. They, they were incorrect in their application, but they learned because we found out what the Scripture meant by understanding the context. You cannot find out who the He is and understand what it means for your life unless you first determine context. Because that Scripture doesn't fit everywhere. You can't pull that Scripture out and go, hammering and soldering is good. That's why God is going to hammer you and solder you. I don't know which parts He's going to solder, but I'm sure it's not going to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the application. Once you've determined that, now you've got to decide if you were wanting to put a lesson or a sermon together, you've got to decide what theme then. A theme is a connected idea or a main idea that goes all through the verses. So, think of the main ideas that we've seen just in the short statements that we've seen. One idea is God is involved in planning His will. Verse 4. God raised up Cyrus. If you do a little study on that, you know that 100 years before he was born, God named him by name. He said, there is going to be a king born. His name is going to be Cyrus. And most scholars believe that the prophet Isaiah, when this king did in fact rise to power, he took in writing, went, and he said, do you know that 100 years ago God named you? And out of that, King Cyrus says, anybody who can name me and predict my life must be powerful. And his reaction was, I'm going to let you go home and I'll pay for it. So that's planning. God plans his will. That's an incredible idea right there. Number two, people trust in idols rather than God. That's what verse 5 through 7, that's what verses 21 through 29 or 24, whatever it is, are, are all about. That's a theme in itself. And a third theme is God does not give up on people who've gotten off track. That's what verse 8 through 20 is. So, those are the main ideas that I see in the Scripture. There may be other minor sub-ideas to that. But So the idea is if you were going to do a sermon or a lesson, if you wanted revelation, which is where Eli and Andy originally started, they wanted to be able to get something out of this. What are we going to do with this scripture? And I think, if I remember right, Andy asked, what does this have to do with us? What are we supposed to do with this? 
Okay? So, you got to choose a theme out of those main ideas. So you can go a number of directions. Number one, you can choose one of the individual ideas. You could preach a powerful sermon on the planning of God. You could talk about Cyrus and how God is involved in world events. Right? Maybe you could even preach on, you know, fear. Like like today, people are freaked out. What's going to happen? We've got Ebola and ISIS and Obama and every other thing. It starts with O and I don't know. <laughs> so what's what's going to happen in the world? And you say, hey, God plans his will. God is involved in that. That would be a theme. Uh, you could merge some of the ideas into one sermon. That would also be acceptable. Because God cares and plans, we should not trust in idols. That would be a whole entire theme that you could develop and do that. But whatever you do, if you are going to do a lesson, a study, or a sermon, the application you get should not violate context. It should not be a statement that is separate from context. So, this is what often... Preachers and guys who write books, they violate context. So, if you were to read verse 17, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I have actually seen that verse be used for social justice and social welfare, that's why we need to dig wells for poor people in Africa. Because the Scripture says the poor and the needy seek water. But you see, that's out of context, isn't it? God is not writing to say, hey folks, you need to dig wells for poor people. I mean, that, that may be a nice thing. So that, uh, You see what I'm saying? So this And... and in preaching, you know, I've, I've been around since Noah got off the boat. So when you, when you, when you see in preaching, guys that do not connect well in preaching often are guys who make statements disconnected from context. I, don't, I actually don't believe that God blesses you taking His word and you know and applying it how you want. So the mind is is logical. It, it, it helps you. One, I believe God is pleased if you honor context and preach biblically. But two, it also, your preaching connects because it resonates with people. They can follow. Right? Your, your brain, it's like, yes, that makes sense. Oh, okay, that is connected to that. I see that in the Scripture. That's very helpful. When you see a guy that doesn't seem to connect it's often because he's preaching things that are disconnected he's preaching random truths from the bible and jamming them into a sermon but it doesn't actually fit and so that hurts your understanding so context is where you should begin to understand any uh any scripture okay so but in the overall i uh i always it's good to ask questions and so, in one thing I do when guys ask questions, I will not, even if you're wrong, I will not, uh, I will not mock you or hassle you. They asked a question; it was actually an incorrect question from the, because they didn't understand the context. But it was great; we all learned, and we get a lesson. Other people will be, uh, will be blessed by this because somebody asked a question. That's that's good, good part of discipleship. Okay, any questions about context or finding context? Make sure, because this is very important, make sure that you do understand it. If you don't understand that, you've got to ask any Robert. Yeah, a humorous story <coughs> I heard about uh, taking, you know, had to do with taking stuff out of context. A man was looking for God's will, so he just opens up the Bible at random and puts his finger in the spot and reads it and says, uh, Judas Iscariot went and hanged himself. Hmm. And so not to be too discouraged, he decided, well, I'll try it again. And he uh, selected a scripture that said, Go and do that likewise. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure that would have been an interesting altar call. Uh, Matthew. You 
mentioned that the commentaries often have like a doctrinal bias. Do you have to watch out for the same thing with the study Bibles? Cause oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, but they often give, um, because they give you an overall view. It, it sometimes is not not so apparent. They don't do it so much in depth. So no, it's true in anything. I mean, there's nothing you're going to read that is not um, uh, that's not going to have some kind of nonsense in it. So you, the answer is not to avoid all study Bibles or commentaries. But anyway, but you, and your question, giving the overall is sometimes more. It's less apparent, I would say. David. One thing that's always puzzled me is in the New Testament, a lot of the apostles, and the disciples, seem to use scripture out of context. You know, it applies to their situation that they're using it for. <coughs> Either I'm misunderstanding it, or it just seems like they're they take a scripture and use it for what they're preaching about or, or speaking about. But if you go and read the yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes, yes, I I, I know what you mean. Well, so one of the things of context is we're not we're not getting into is um, when the idea. Context means with or connected to a text. So one of the understandings is of, of the Bible as a whole is that the, the application that you make cannot violate all of the Word of God. So that may be the answer. No, that's, that's very good. That's, a, that's a thinking a little deeper, David. But, so I think the point is it's not wrong because it doesn't violate the whole revelation of God. Unlike Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who are, you know, the Mormons, famous one, you know, you be baptized for the dead. Yeah, that's why you're going to be baptized for your dead relatives. When it actually was talking, that wasn't what it was saying. So that violates the rest of Scripture. So, uh, yeah. So I, I get that's, that would be the final application would be does it fit with the whole revelation of, of God? Yeah. When you're looking through the Bible and finding <clears throat> God's promises and things like this, how do you know when it's something that can be legitimately applied to Christians today and when it was maybe you know, something for Israel or you know, we're not Israel or something for a specific time period? How do you... I, again, do you... I, think, uh, I think that it is... Um, are there other revelations that talk about that? So, you have a particular verse that, that may have to do with if you were to um, apply uh, verses in Zechariah uh, to you, there would be things in there that you cannot because they are obviously for a time frame or obviously for a national application. There are other things that actually are for the nation or God's people, but it does apply because it also, in other words, this thought here is talking about Israel. It's talking about the fact that God doesn't give up on people who've made mistakes. But that thought actually predates the law, right? is that his dealings with Jacob, he identifies himself as the God of Jacob, right? So that predates the law in the, in the New Testament, that thought. So taking some of those thoughts would not be incorrect. I have confidence that God has mercy on people who have failed because that is found all throughout Scripture. That's not the character of God. It's the character of God, yes, and his, his widespread dealings. So what you have to what you have to make sure is that that is not uh, the things that you can apply cannot apply are things that are future prophecy, right? There's a future prophecy of what's going to happen in the nation or something that is national. That's that's uh, those are the things that get you in trouble when you start saying that's that's for me when its application is meant to be as a nation. So that's that would be, Pastor. In um, you were talking about in in finding like the three themes in this, like how God is involved. Yep. Like yep. And so, in preaching, so 
clear, I guess, with your theme. I mean, it's, it's wise to reduce them because you you didn't use the entire text. I mean, <coughs> well, well, there's there's several things. Number one, you'll notice I never read really long texts simply for the sake of time. If I was preaching from that, I probably would start reading at verse 4, um, which says, Who has performed it, done it, calling the nations from the beginning? I am the Lord, I'm first and last. The coastlands are blah, 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 blah. I would probably read 4 through 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, I'm chosen, the descendants of uh, Abraham, my friend. So, in doing that, I actually... That that covers portions of the whole sect. You often hear me say, "You read this in your own time," because mm-hmm. it's a whole chapter long. I don't need the, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to take the time to read that. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of reducing, is reduce the scripture. Um, and so, uh, reducing. I think you have to have the main idea. Even if you were to merge those three themes into one, you still have to have the main idea. What is your main idea? The, is your main idea uh, the, the the care of God for His people or the planning of God? Um, you know, then you can pull those other thoughts in. But you have a central idea that is going to be uh, going to be played out. Let me, let me go back to your. Your thoughts. Um, yeah, so you'd have to have a main idea of either, you know, the planning of God. God uh, plans things for for His His people. Um, our problem is that we don't trust God. <coughs> that could be the second thought. And uh, third thought is that is that God doesn't give up, you know. So could you make it? I mean, each of those thoughts you can make your own sermon. Sure, and that's the other thing to do. <coughs> Either of those are uh, so. The the application is not. Um, you can do any of those. You can just. I'm going to preach on the planning of God alone. Mm-hmm. Look at the planning of God, and then so then you could use these scriptures. If I'm sticking only to planning, then I'm looking at aspects. So maybe the fact that God does plan and is involved in our lives. Um, You know, uh, people don't trust God's plan. And, you know, but thirdly is is that you have, you know, an encouragement to trust because it's a better plan, Uh, you, you know. You can do a whole thing on idolatry, the foolishness of idolatry, the tendency to idolatry, the foolishness of idolatry, repenting of idolatry. You can talk about failure, the fact of failure, God's reaction to failure, recovering from failure. Right? So that would be a way that you could do three different sermons. And sometimes that's better. It, there's not a right and a wrong. It's not. It's not like that's from hell. As long as it makes sense, and as long as each is connected, okay. that's the main thing. Okay. Right. If if you were a, if you were pastoring, you may be smarter to divide that in three, because for pastors, often their biggest struggle is what am I going to preach? So you just had three great thoughts that you want to jam in one sermon. There's three good sermons. Hmm. That may be a wiser way to go. And it also sometimes makes it more clear. There, David? Seems like it'd be easier to concentrate if you did do that. But like, what if you're, um, say, the sermon that you get inspired on is in a bigger passage like that? Would it make sense? Would it be correct um, to preach, like what you said, focus as your, your main scripture on, like, say, verses 4 through 8 or whatever? But then you want to. Um, Talk about the truths that are in the later sections without yeah. reading the whole thing. It's okay yeah. to refer to that's later okay. on. That's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just do that as a as a a way to reduce time. You know. So you, you, you got to and there, and so there's a logical reason why I do that. Is is number one, not everybody who comes uh, brings their Bible, right? 
So, let's read our scripture. Well, there are people who didn't bring a Bible. So, I'm reading on, you know, some... So, so some are incredibly long. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach from Psalms 119. <laughs> you got 167 verses or whatever it is, you know. It's going to take me a long time. That's one factor. Number two, people who don't have their Bibles, they are, unless they're incredibly disciplined, they're unlikely to listen. And go, oh yeah, hmm. You know, they're going... <laughs> Look at the pretty flowers. <laughs> so, you know, people got ADD these days. So uh, so that's why I don't read long passages. And then also I I try to aim for my sermons. To uh, I aim for 35 minutes. And so uh, I, I have a self-imposed time limit as well. So I know if I'm going to read long. If I am... I know if reading my scripture... <coughs> And the opening illustration and introduction, if I finish that and I am already more than four minutes into the sermon, I'm going to struggle to finish in 35. I just have a little mental clock going. I time myself, you know. God bless the iPhone. I have a, I time every sermon. And so when I'm talking and I'm reading, I'm also looking at the clock. And when I finish that, according to how long I am, that tells me got to speed up. All right, I got. I might skip a little bit. I got to move because this is going to take me too long. So that that's a time discipline. In in the Prescott Church, I'm very disciplined on time. You notice, I I rarely preach more than 35 minutes, and uh, and I think that's a good healthy amount. So, but that comes over time. You won't get that when you first start. Okay. <laughs> well, you never know. See, this is the thing about nerves. See, some people, like the first time I preach an altar call in the concert scene, uh, I practice and practice at home, and I thought, uh, you know, 10 minutes is the time limit that, that we give guys. I thought, man, how am I ever going to get that out? But me, when I get nervous, I talk fast. So I I burn. I have no idea how anybody understood what I said. I, I mean, <laughs> through the whole thing. I, I did the whole thing like in three minutes. <laughs> okay, but other people, that's not how they do. When they get nervous, they slow down because they're thinking. So the but, mm-hmm, and so it goes longer. I mean, that's that's you, you just never know. Eli, I was about to ask about that very thing is I have the same tendency as far as I'll run through something if I'm nervous and I was wondering is it better to err on that side if if I'm trying to correct that and have a good time on it is it better to err on the side of being a bit shorter <coughs> rather than yeah yeah I've never you know I've never had people complain that I preach too short <laughs> <laughs> never <laughs> right you know that's, that's that's why Pastor Mitchell usually always has me preach the fast because I am the guy who has preached a twelve and a half minute sermon in the fast end of fast. So if I was renowned for preaching for fifty five minutes, probably I would not be elected for fasting duties. Who, who else had a hand there? Yeah. It was a, a kind of topic, but I mean, in pioneering, like you're talking about time limits. So here in Prescott, it's a completely different setting. I mean, so in a pioneer setting, are you wanting to shoot for a certain length? I mean. In, in a pioneer setting, you could actually be shorter, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you the whole the whole idea in in pioneering is flexibility. All right. Now this is a, this is an actual story. So, um, Steve and Emily and the building that that they got is in an office complex, and so unbeknownst to them, uh, that. In the complex is a DUI and drug relapse counseling center. When people relapse, they go in there. So, Emily and Stephen are at the building one night, and this lady walks by. Emily witnesses to her. Her husband is uh, mandated. He's got to go to the relapse counseling thing. So, Emily witnesses to her. She gets saved. The guy comes out, they talk to him, so they come along, they have gotten saved. So then now, so the the relapse uh, program is on Wednesday night. So Steve and Emily are waiting for people to come. They're pioneering, and this is often what pioneering is about, is anybody going to come? 
And so Richard and Annabelle, they showed up at uh, 7.15. Service doesn't start till 7.30. And he says, my class is at 7.50. I don't know, weird time. I don't know why they did that or whatever. So Stephen said, service is going to start right now. <laughs> so at 7.15, skip the song service. Anybody got any prayer requests? We're going to pray. Sit down and just shotgun a short little uh, sermon. Simplified. God can help your life. He can change you. Blah, blah, blah. Anybody want to get saved? Richard and Annabelle, they get saved. And so that's, that's pioneering. Right? Stephen would be stupid. And, oh, we start at 7.30 right here. <laughs> That'd be dumb. Well, nobody else came. It was only them. Right? Why would you want to miss out on a good opportunity? And then... Secondly, is he modified his, his sermon to fit within, this guy's got to be out of here by 10 to 8. He's got to be in the class by 10 to 8. Or whatever. So, so yeah, in pioneering, you've got to have flexibility. And, uh, and that would be... So, in pioneering, that's one of the things I try to help guys in preaching. When I do preaching classes, they often, man, it's so hard, I'm working a job, I preach shorter. Why, you know, some guys have in their head, if I... If I'm if I don't preach forty five minutes, I'm robbing people. It's like, well, we only preach thirty five in Prescott, you know. And come on, I don't think you have as much to say as Pastor Mitchell. So why don't you just preach twenty? So that would be that'd be helpful. <laughs> so I think that's a good that's a good rule. So shorter would be better. <clears throat> okay. But but all all that is a Time is a discipline. These guys uh, who, who guys who preach long are often they're undisciplined. That's the real issue. You know, uh, Harold Warner preaches long, but he packs in, you know, five sermons into one sermon. He's got, you know, he does. In in fairness to Harold, he's got a lot to say. Other guys that preach long, it's just you just were running at the mouth. So I look at that, you you repeated yourself 27 times about the same thing. You went, ah, 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 50,000 times. <laughs> Your illustrations, you read stupid details that nobody cares about. You could have just gotten to the point. You could have, you could have disciplined that down. Right? So the, time is a discipline. That's a, that's a pioneering issue. I think when the first times as a new convert, I began to understand what context, how, how important context was, was when you preached a sermon um, when you got back from Israel, and to this day, it's the reason why you know you were denied your creamer after you had dinner. Um, because I remember as a new convert starting to read the Bible, um, running across the hallway to Diedrich, who was my roommate at the time, and talking about because I was hearing about David a lot, so I was reading the Bible and found out that he had the affair with Bathsheba and ran over to Dietrich and said, did you know that about David? But I remember reading that. <laughs> I remember reading that scripture that you will not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk and thinking, huh, that's really weird. Okay, no big deal. And I kind of moved on until when you did that sermon, you pulled out the context of the history, the setting that they were in that it had to do yeah. it was a fertility, fertility god. It was a, you know, a method that they used to hopefully get favored and stuff, you know, things like that. And Magic. At that point, that really, that, I mean, that was crucial in me starting to understand how just important it was, like you said, to ask questions, but also to understand contact. And then, maybe. yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's why I don't bathe. You know, I, I don't boil. <laughs> never. I will never. There are times I'm tempted to, and I go, wait a minute. No, no, not for me. <laughs> so the context is why we could eat milk and have milk. <laughs> I've been struggling. <laughs> That's right. I just can't resist it. That's right. Neil can say never once since that time has he ever boiled the goat his mother's milk. Yeah. I heard a sermon one time where the pastor uh, read the entire book of Jonah. Wow. <laughs> that would be long. Go ahead. Ken. You've all heard uh, people when you're witnessing or something <coughs> pull out of context, judge not as you shall be judged. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Lem? Question. When you get a theme and you're, you're preaching off that theme. And often you hear guys say, well, uh, 
a text, a random text during their sermon from a different book and it doesn't necessarily meet that theme? Is that, is that okay? Well, Just a, a, a textual sermon is like this. We find a text, we understand the text, we have a main theme from the text. That does not mean those are the only scriptures we're going to use in the sermon, but the other scriptures have to support that idea because the Bible is a unified book. So uh, it's not wrong to have other scriptures as long as it supports that idea. There are other scriptures in the Bible that talk about God's planning. There are other scriptures that talk about God's care for his people. There are other scriptures about idolatry. That would not be wrong to apply. Um, so if I understand what you're saying, the scriptures that they pulled from don't necessarily have to have the exact context that you're looking for. Right. But does it support the same idea? That's more to the point. Okay. What gets guys in trouble is that they pull in scriptures that have nothing to They don't even have to do with their sermon. And that's what... A textual sermon, you stay within the boundaries of the theme. And that's why I teach guys primarily textual preaching. Because the guys that you can't follow is like they're going this direction. All of a sudden, they're going, bing! What? What, what does that have to do with it? It didn't have anything to do with it. It's true. Hopefully what they're saying is true. It just didn't have to do with this. So it's hard to follow. And that and that's what you want. You you want biblically to you want people to understand and be able to follow you. That would be totally depressing to me to to end a sermon and have somebody go, What did he preach about? I don't know. It was from the Bible. So just on a personal level, do you you mentioned that one of your favorite um, study guides is the um, <coughs> life application. Life application. So that would probably be the one that you primarily go to. I mean, the most that you probably recommend outside of most. It, it depends. I I use study Bibles in two ways. One is in my Bible reading. I sometimes will look at the notes. Um, I I use it number one just to have a general overall understanding. I'll read a scripture and the notes, or I can use it. I read the scripture and only the things I don't understand, I go to the notes. Or, in this case, there's something I have no idea, I go to a study Bible to give me an understanding of it. So I use it in three different ways. Okay. So yeah, I like that one. My my two... Uh, and, and when I say that I like it, the, what I like about it, it's very practical. Life application, that's exactly what they wanted. What does this have to do with your life? So it's very practical in there. Um, the Nelson Study Bible is very good, has excellent uh, practical things. And then you get into, they have different ones that have different strengths. My dad loves Schofield. Schofield has very, um, very good notes and information. Now, what he applies will not necessarily be practical for your life, but he will just simply help you to understand that that scripture. So it has a different strength. Dake will have a jillion details that you don't need. He has lists. But occasionally he'll have some things that's like, that was tremendous. I'll do a few people in regards to his I bought his study Bible when I was about a year saved and <clears throat> came across chaos theory and uh, yeah, I, I put it down and didn't come back to it for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so, yeah, he's he's. It's not something I would recommend for for uh, guys first starting in the Bible. <coughs> Different ones, sir. Is there a reason you keep your sermons at thirty-five or below? Uh, I I just think that's a good amount. Uh, I think that's a good. That gives me something to shoot for. Is if I aim for 35, like I'm not totally depressed if I preach 38, you know, I don't feel like a failure in life. Uh, I often will preach less. Uh, I have just found that that is a good amount to keep people's attention and to say what needs to be said. And so what I see is when I preach longer, 
is it is a discipline issue. So that's what I've you know kind of the amount that I've come to that that I can find. When I preach longer, I often when I'm out of town I preach longer because I tell stories, and telling stories can get you in trouble. You know, so you can you know, you start telling details or adding in an extra story that might not have originally been in there and and. Uh, so yeah, that's just a, a I don't know a good healthy amount of time. Well, Ken. Um, Pastor Mitchell says a lot that he doesn't preach <clears throat> an, an obscure text. Would that then be because uh, you're not finding other application of it anywhere in the Bible, and it's just going to be kind of confusing to the people, or what? He says he doesn't preach out of obscure text. He said that that when. Dennis Wright asked him about Pura and Gideon, you know, but he ended up preaching about it anyway. But... <coughs> I don't know. I've never. I, I must have missed that 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 question. Um, I think maybe what he is talking about. There are guys that it's almost a point of pride, right? I don't preach from by golly John three sixteen. I preach from. You know the uh, the naphtalim and the and the, the sons of God and the daughters of man. They they like to preach on odd scriptures or contentious scriptures or scriptures that that uh, nobody else you know will tell you this. But I'm going to tell you. I'm going to reveal to you who the this uh, this person is or something. So maybe that's what he's talking about. I, I would have to ask him, Ken. Because certainly he does preach on what we would call obscure, but maybe that's what he's coming against, is that idea. But and oh, also the other thing is that no, what it, what it, I'm now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Kevin Foley and I were having this discussion. He's actually going to do a, a seminar. Uh, this week we were discussing the Bible speaks and Paul warns t- uh, Timothy uh, to avoid vain babblings, and you know. So there are things that we can't prove one way or another, and so there are guys they want to make a major. This is what it is. So I was like, well, but there's not enough information. I think that would be more to the point of what Pastor Mitchell's saying. Mm. Is I don't base whole doctrines on things that are can't really be proven. Right? So, uh, in that, I know that what he was talking about, um, he had just read a book, I think he referred to it last week, and so the guy was making a whole thing about the sons of God and the daughters of man, and then, so it was like kind of like the application at the end of the book was these are aliens. The giants <laughs> are aliens, and so I was like, what? You know, that's dumb. And I've seen guys do that. They they make a big deal about some scripture that we can't prove it one way or another. You know, did did Samuel really rise from the dead, or was it a demon spirit? The Bible's not really clear, so let's not make it a whole doctrine, right? When it comes back to anything important, it's going to be mentioned throughout the Bible. Yeah, exactly. So you can choose an obscure text that's on a common theme. But if it's an obscure text with an obscure interpretation, I don't know, it's probably not wise. Nor is it what you should concentrate on, in, especially in pioneering. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very good. Yep, Andy? Um, so when you're looking in context, do you look for words, for example, like so and but, that would create a um, contrast that... You can, or they're making a connection? No. Or, or certain words that... No. I'm not into sewing butts myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no, no. Be, because obviously, if you have, you know, at, the, so, and, but, you know, those are conjunctions and they're, uh, you know, there's, if you, were to, if you were to do a search on how many of them are in the Bible, it's, you know, Thousands. So very rare is 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 a conjunction going to the whole scripture is going to determine that that. So no, I don't think so. I, I think finding the key word, like in there, if I was just looking at that scripture from scratch, the key word 
to find the context of what we had was the key word he. It was in verse 2. There was a he. There's a, there's a guy. Who is this? Because then if you look at the other scriptures, they obviously are pointing back to verse 2, which is the he. It tells us what he did. It tells us the people's reaction. It tells us that God put him in place. So the he is actually the key word to understand the whole thing. So it would be very unlikely. And, and the only time that a conjunction would would be if it changes the meaning, whether it was, you know, is it and or is it but or, you know. But that would be very rare. I can't even think of a sermon that I've ever preached where the whole thing depended on, you know. There, there may be, but I'm just not thinking of it, which probably tells me it's not a, not a common thing. Yeah? Very good.